concerned that something was amiss. These disciples whom Paul had thought were Christians were missing something. So he asked them in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is Paul's litmus test. In the New Testament, the reception of the Holy Spirit is the decisive mark of the Christian. Romans 8 verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 12 13 says, In one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. The Christian is, by definition, someone who has the Spirit of Christ. All Christians have received the Spirit. So when Paul asked those men, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He's really asking them whether or not they are really Christians. Whether or not they really come to believe in Jesus. And their response is revealing. They say, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Matt preached on this passage last week, and he mentioned that these were not disciples of Jesus, rather they were disciples of John the Baptist. They were baptized with water for repentance with John's baptism, but they have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, which is Jesus' baptism. That's why in verse 5, Paul baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus, which shows that they have not been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were not yet Christian. They were not aware that Jesus had died, risen, and ascended to the heavens, and that he had sent his Holy Spirit to his people to mark the new era of God's salvation. So when at the time of their baptism, Paul laid his hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Genuine repentance from sin, genuine faith in Jesus, and Christian water baptism they are always accompanied by the reception of the Holy Spirit. By Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we should not make a mistake. Because there's a big difference between life with the Spirit and life without Him. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus told us that it's better for him to leave. So that we might have the Holy Spirit with us. But sometimes I think we live like Jesus never fulfilled that promise. We think of holding the Holy Spirit as this wallflower who sits quietly in the corner. And stays out of everyone's way. But the book of Acts paints a radically different picture. In Acts 1.8, which is the thesis of this book, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. To have the Holy Spirit is to have power. And our passage this morning shows that clearly. He says in verses 11 to 12, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Earlier in Acts, in chapter 5, it said that many signs were done regularly by the apostles. But what's happening here is not a regular, run-of-the-mill miracle. 
This is an, these are extraordinary miracles. And what's extraordinary about them is not the nature of the miracles themselves, but the manner in which these miracles are being performed. The sick being healed and evil spirits being cast out. These, these are nothing new in the book of Acts. A lame man was healed in chapter 3. Aeneas, the paralytic, was healed. Dorcas was raised from the dead in chapter 9. A cripple was made to walk in chapter 14. A demon-possessed slave girl was exercised in chapter 16. So these miracles in chapter 19 were not extraordinary in and of themselves. Luke tells us exactly why they were extraordinary. Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirit came out of them. Usually, miracles were mediated directly by God's chosen agents. But in these unusual cases, miracles were mediated indirectly by common everyday objects that had touched God's chosen agents. This is similar to what happened in Luke chapter 8, when a woman who had discharged of blood for 12 years believed that if she just touched the hem of Jesus' garment, the fringe of his garment, that she would be healed. And with that faith, she touched, reached out and touched the edge of his garment, and she was healed immediately. Evidently, God does perform miracles sometimes through things that have touched His Spirit to build children. How many of us, if today we heard a report of such things happening around us, would dismiss it out of hand as, as baseless superstition of theologically unlearned? I think we're too quick to put God in a box God is the creator and lord of heavens and the earth. He's not bound by the ordinary laws of nature. God can do what he pleases. And he can heal in any manner he pleases. And evidently God does heal in this way. At times. Gifts of healing are one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 that God distributes sovereignly among his people. And 1 Corinthians 14.1 commands us to earnestly desire those gifts. But I also want to caution us about the other extreme. This account of the miracles that occurred through handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had touched is not a blueprint for a successful healing ministry. These are extraordinary miracles precisely because God does not usually work in these ways. Note that Paul doesn't start a handkerchief ministry. He's not going around collecting handkerchiefs, piling up, touching them all, blessing them, and then saying, hey, ship them out to as many people as you can. He doesn't do that. He definitely doesn't see this as an opportunity for lucrative business and start selling such handkerchiefs, which some people do. And there's a very simple reason for that. Look at who is the subject of the verb in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God was doing the miracles. Paul is not performing these miracles. God is the one doing it. Paul is the medium, the conduit through which God is using his healing power. This is why Paul cannot start a handkerchief ministry, because he cannot guarantee that the handkerchiefs will heal anyone. 
The source of healing power is God, not Paul. You can implore your mailman as much as you want, but he cannot guarantee you that you will get a Christmas present this year. Why? Because he's just a delivery man. He doesn't send the gifts. A guitar cannot make music by itself. Because it's only an instrument. It needs a musician who knows how to play it. Likewise, Paul cannot heal anyone because he's not the one who heals. He's simply the instrument. It is God who heals through him. So this is reason to be humble when God does use us at times miraculously to heal sick people or to cast out demons, which some of us have experienced. We are not great. We are not powerful. We merely serve a great and powerful God. So as God is doing extraordinary miracles through Paul, some pretenders want in on the action. They're called here the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. Being sons of a Jewish high priest, these men had an impeccable religious pedigree. They appeared to have leveraged their position and standing well to carve out a place for themselves in this exorcism industry. And it says in verse 13 that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. To invoke the name is a technical expression that refers to calling. It's an incantation, incantation that ancient people used to call forth a spirit. Name a name, to invoke the name. By naming a person or spirit or deity with higher authority, these people believe that they could drive out weaker, lesser spirits. And this belief that names have magical powers and that secret knowledge of such names of deities and spirits conferred power on that person is found in numerous ancient and pagan texts. So the seven sons of Sceva try to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus in order to drive out the evil spirits. And theoretically, this should have worked. Right? Because Ephesians 1, 20-21 tells us that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name. That is name. Not only in this state, but also in the world to come. The words rule, authority, power, dominion are all words that the ancient people used to refer to magical, in magical texts, angelic powers, spirits. Paul is saying that all spiritual forces are subject to Jesus because the Lord Jesus has the name that is above every name. So that theoretically, invoking the name of Jesus, the highest name of Jesus, should have worked in casting out these evil spirits. But it doesn't work. And the outcome is terrifying. It says in verses 15 to 16, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit left on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, 
so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The evil spirit freely admits, Jesus, I know. Yes, I know Jesus. He has complete authority over me, and there's nothing I can do about it. I know Jesus. Oh, I also know Paul. He's been wreaking havoc. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's a servant of the mighty Lord Jesus, and there's nothing I can do about him either. But who are you? Who do you think you are? You're a fraud. You have no authority to cast me out. You think I care that your daddy is a high priest? You have no spiritual power. You're a nobody. And aided by the power of this demon, this man who is possessed by this demon overpowers all seven sons of Sceva. And they leave with their tails behind their legs, between their legs, and that's the way you say it, right? <laughs> totally exposed, embarrassed, abused. Ironic, they came out to drive out the demon. Instead, they're driven out by the demon. This begs the question, why didn't their exorcism work? It's because they're only pretenders. They're not Christian. They have not been baptized in the name of Jesus. They don't actually bear the name of Jesus, so they don't carry His authority. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't even know Jesus, in fact. They only know Paul, who seemed to have great spiritual power and was performing miracles in the name of Jesus. So look at their incantation. That's why it's secondhand. They don't say, I adjure you by the name of our Lord Jesus. No, they don't say that. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. What's sad about this? But the Lord Jesus is not someone you can manipulate for your own purposes through some magical incantation. The Lord Jesus works through His servants. Through those who have believed in Him, those, those who have pledged allegiance to Him, those who have been indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. It's not the formula in Jesus' name that matters as much as the reality of being united with Jesus through faith. Do you know Jesus? Have you been indwelled by the Spirit of Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with Him? Or do you merely invoke the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims? Or Sean proclaims? Or your parents proclaim? Or your spouse proclaims? Or your friend proclaims? Do you have first-hand knowledge of Jesus or only a second-hand? knowledge. Here's how you tell the difference. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell 
What is Jesus saying? There are many people like the sons of Sceva who try to use Jesus' name for their own purposes, try to use Jesus' name to do miracles, try to use Jesus' name. However, the true people of God are those who do the will of the Father. True Christians don't use Jesus to advance themselves. They denounce themselves and follow him. Some politicians use the Bible as a prop. Use a church building as a boardwalk just to get the Christian vote. Some people repeatedly bring up their religious upbringing. Well, I grew up going to church on the campaign trail. Not because their views are actually informed by scripture, by their faith, only to earn people's trust and win their votes. They use the name of Jesus for self-advancement. They don't proclaim Jesus. They're essentially just name-dropping to boost their own credentials, when in reality they have no relationship with the Lord Jesus. Some people use Jesus like a charm or a talisman. They wear a cross necklace or put a crucifix on the wall, put a statuette of a Christian saint, a Catholic saint in the garden, get their infants baptized in the church even though they don't go to church the rest of their life. And their lives are utterly inconsistent with the word of God. They, do, they think that by doing so, they'll bring blessing and good fortune upon us. Some people think of faith in Jesus in the same way they think of life insurance. They think all they need to do is pay their dues on time, give a little bit of money to the church here and there, attend worship occasionally, once in a while, maybe on Easter and Christmas, and they think they'll be covered when they die. Their religion is entirely selfishly motivated. They think that they are masters of their own fate. Jesus is not their Lord because they don't do His will. Let us not think that Jesus exists to meet our needs and make us feel better about ourselves. Jesus does not exist for our self-advancement or self-fulfillment. The church is not ultimately about us. It's about God. We are a worshiping community. Do you ask God to promote your own agenda in life? Or do you submit to hate? Do you cherry pick and use the word of God to justify your views and behaviors? Or do you let the word of God search you and challenge you? If someone were to draw a picture of your hopes and dreams, would Jesus be in that picture? Only those who have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ enjoy the power and privileges of being in Christ. Jesus is not content with you just knowing about him. He wants you to know him. He loves you and invites you into a relationship with him. 
He wants to dwell within you by His Spirit. He wants to be closer. So then how should we respond to Jesus? That brings us to my last point, believers' repentance. He says in verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The news of what happened to the Jewish exorcists quickly made its rounds throughout Ephesus, and as a result, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Hey, remember those sons of Sceva? that fleeced us last time and took thousands from us. They were just exposed the other day. It turns out they're charlatans. Pretenders. But guess what? That Jesus, that Paul proclaims, he had really great authority. Power. So Jesus' name lifted up. And many people respond by putting their faith in Jesus. It says in verses 18 to 20, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found they came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Spirits and, and magic were part of everyday life in the ancient Greco-Roman world. So it's not surprising that many of the new converts to Christianity were practicing the magic arts as well. But after coming to faith in Jesus, they came confessing and divulging these practices. They voluntarily, nobody's, this is not the Inquisition, nobody's saying, bring all your books, we're going to burn them. No, they voluntarily bring the books that they had paid hefty sums for, and burn them. These books cost a lot of money just because they contain these secret incantations that they believe conferred power on the people who knew them. He says total value of the burnt books came to 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver is, is a reference to the Greek drachma, which is a common laborer's entire day's worth of wage. One silver, 50,000 silvers. If you divide that by 365, that's the equivalent of 137 laborers' annual wage. With no days off. If we say that an average worker today in the U.S. earns $15 per hour, $120 per day, 50,000 drachmas would equal approximately $6 million. Those are some expensive books people's life investments. Why did people do that? Why did people buy it? Because they thought, if I just have this spell, if I just have this incantation, I can make sure me and my family were healthy, we're wealthy. We have a successful life. People had put their hopes and dreams into these things, but very gladly, they come now and burn them. They not only renounce them for themselves, they don't want anyone else to use these futile books. Scripture uniformly condemns all forms of divination, witchcraft, and interpretation of omens. 
because these are all attempts to seek guidance and spiritual help and power apart from God. They are human attempts to know and control the future, to be self-sufficient, to cut God out of the picture. They are an affront to God's sovereignty. They are a rejection of God's gracious and loving initiative speak to us, to relate to us, to guide us, and to save us. If you have dabbled in the occult, and now they exist more and more common, Ouija boards, tarot cards, horoscopes, witchcraft, if you have visited mediums and psychics, you must repent and never return to those things. If you have Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Native American, or other religious amulets or talismans in your room, in your house, if you have idols, you must rid yourself of these things. Turn from those vain things to the living God. And this passage is also relevant for those of us who haven't had anything to do with such things. People in the ancient world bought these books and magical incantations as a way of securing their health and wealth and prosperity, as a way of controlling their lives and their future. In what ways do you try to control your own life, to control your own future? What are the things that you bank on? What do you rely on for your security and sense of well-being? Do you rely on money? 1 Timothy 6, 17 commands us not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You try to control your life and your future by being a workaholic. You try to control your life by worrying excessively. You think that you can have control of things by worrying. I'm not saying don't save your money or invest your money or don't work hard. I'm not saying don't make plans. But we must not rely on these things, do these things apart from our dependency on God. We must be careful that our that nothing displaces God as our source of ultimate hope and trust. Because after all, that's what it means to follow Jesus, isn't it? To continually trust ourselves to Him more and more. That's why verse 18 calls the new Christians believers. That's what we're called. Christians are not called the true exorcists or the true miracle workers, in contrast to the Jewish exorcists. Christians are not defined primarily by what they do. They're defined by what they believe, by the name they proclaim. And what exactly do they believe in verse 20? So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And the result of all of this, the result of God working extraordinary miracles, 
He's not an unhealthy fascination with and pursuit of only those supernatural occurrences. The result, the consequence is the prevailing of God's mighty word. Increasing faith in the good news, the saving news of Jesus Christ. People in the world try all kinds of religions, philosophies, and practices and methods to get in touch with God or to get to know God. But God has already revealed the one definitive way by which we are to come to know Him, and that is Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says, Long ago and many times, in many ways, God spoke by the, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the Word of God in human flesh. He is the only Son of God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God Himself. That's why Jesus said in John 14, verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Don't listen to the peddlers of half-truths and lies who have only a distorted glimpse of the spiritual reality. Don't be misled by the counterfeits. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, what a wonderful promise. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus taught what Jesus did is preserved for us according according hearing the scriptures so that we might get to know him. We don't need any magic thoughts because we have a holy book. Don't think that there is an alternate route to God. There's no other way that God has appointed for our salvation. I would plead with you if you would not put your faith in Jesus. We were all once sinners who had turned to our own way. This is what the scripture, the word of God tells us. We've all turned to our own way. We've all rebelled against God, our creator. We have not lived in accordance with his will to do his will. We have lived for ourselves. And that is rebellion. That is treason. That is sin against the holy and righteous God. And what we deserved was to be cut off from God's presence. God's righteousness, His justice demanded our condemnation. But because God loves us, because God wanted to save a people for Himself, He sent His only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus, the innocent one, the faithful one, dies the death of guilty ones like you and me. And then he raised him from the dead to give us new life, eternal life, resurrection life. Have you turned away from your sins and turned to Jesus? Is your life characterized by the self-promoting, powerless pretense of the exorcist? 
whereby the Christ exalted genuine repentance of the wickedness. And if you have repented, if you seek to obey God and follow Him, be encouraged, be assured, because that does not happen without the Spirit of God. No one apart from the Spirit desires the things of God. No one apart from the Spirit repents of their sin. We all have varying levels of fullness of the Spirit, but every Christian knows Jesus. Every Christian has the Spirit. And pray that every single one of you will be able to Let's pray. God, we thank you for resurrection life, eternal heavenly inheritance secured for us by our Lord Jesus. Help us never to lose sight of it. Never lose the sense of wonder at your mercy. Jesus' name.